This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. True crime, unsolved cases, strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 2, Michael Taylor, Demoniac. Of all the incidents that I had in 30 years of police work, Nothing affected me like that one. That's a quote from retired police constable Ian Walker, describing the horrific crime of Michael Taylor. Today's episode looks at the power of faith and belief, namely what happens when somebody's faith and belief becomes so fanatical it crosses the line into dangerous, or in this case, deadly. I will here and now place a trigger warning on this episode. There are certain gruesome aspects of this case that we will mention in specific detail towards the end of the show. But by the end of this episode, you will see the red flags that were missed in regards to someone's declining mental health and the devastation that caused. If we were to lay down the bullet points of this case on paper and not put a date on it, you would assume this case came directly from the 1600s. Namely, somebody with clear negative mental health indicators, having it decided by a group of clergymen that it wasn't in fact his mental health, but was in fact a series of demons that had infested his body. But this isn't the 1600s. This is 1974. Some aspects of this case will shock you, some will leave you dumbfounded, and some should make you question the amount of faith we place in other people. But first, welcome back to The Deadly Countdown. I hope you all enjoyed episode one, where we of course looked at the case of Butch DeFeo. As you may or may not know, I come from a paranormal podcasting background, so... It's unsurprising I've started with the first two shows being based more or less on a paranormal topic, albeit from the slant of a true crime angle. That all changes next week when we look at The Vampire of Hanover. Now, although the title would suggest otherwise, there's truly nothing even slightly paranormal about that case. And so, if you are looking for a more paranormal scare especially at this time of year, I suggest going and checking out my other show, The Dark Paranormal. But in the meantime, I think it's time that we start The Deadly Countdown. In the small market town of Osset, West Yorkshire, 
Michael Taylor and his wife Christine were undergoing a challenging phase. You see, an injury from a workplace accident had left Michael in both constant physical pain and financial difficulty. The subsequent emotional turmoil had left Michael in a state of depression. Amidst this backdrop of doom and gloom, a local friend, Barbara Waldman, reached out to the Taylors. Concerned about their well-being and sensing their isolation, Barbara extended an invitation to a social event that she'd been attending on a regular basis. But this wasn't any ordinary gathering. It was a meeting of the Christian Fellowship of Osset, a group associated with the burgeoning movement of charismatic Christianity. For Michael and Christine, who had never previously expressed any religious inclination, this invitation was rather unexpected. Their perception of religious groups perhaps tainted by stereotypes of rigid, overly zealous individuals. However, upon attending the fellowship meeting, their apprehensions were quickly dispelled. Contrary to their expectations, the congregation comprised warm, welcoming individuals, much like themselves, and they immediately felt at home. The standout figure amongst the group that evening was a young 22-year-old lay preacher who went by the name of Marie Robinson. Marie's charisma, both in terms of her religious fervour and her magnetic personality, deeply resonated with the Taylors, particularly Michael. Under her guidance, the congregation not only warmly welcomed them, but also provided the tailors with a newfound optimism. And so, Michael and Christine found themselves drawn to Christianity, eager to delve deeper into their newfound faith. During one particular prayer session, led by Marie, Michael experienced a profound sense of relief, happiness, momentarily free from his chronic pain, However, this euphoria was fleeting. Outside the confines of the church and the fellowship group, Michael's pain and depression returned with a vengeance. It became evident that the church and the fellowship group had become his sanctuary, the only place where he felt genuine happiness and a possibility for a brighter future. In essence, Michael Taylor's journey into the realm of charismatic Christianity highlights the profound impact that community and spiritual guidance can have on an individual's well-being. At a time when Michael felt isolated and despondent, the Christian Fellowship of Osset, under the charismatic leadership of Marie Robinson, provided both a beacon of hope and solace. As these meetings progressed, Michael built a close friendship with Marie. Marie, a woman with fascinating charisma and an exceptional grasp of scripture, made an everlasting impact on Michael. Despite Michael's outward appearance of being a mild-mannered former butcher, Michael would eventually come to view his spiritual mission as being intricately woven into a complex tapestry one 
in which Marie would play a pivotal role. Michael, under Marie's tutelage, started to rethink his own ideas and dive more into the teachings of the organisation. Words cannot describe Marie's influence on Michael. He discovered comfort in the support of the group and, for the first time, he felt a connection to something that was bigger than himself. The days moved into weeks, and as the weeks evolved into months, Michael and Marie's connection grew in both strength and potential danger. As Michael became more engrossed in the teachings and the community, he started to blindly follow Marie's lead without question. Their relationship began to isolate them from friends and family outside of the group, causing concern amongst those close to Michael. Even Christine began to suspect that things were not totally platonic between Michael and Marie. Despite the warning signs, Michael remained convinced that his spiritual journey was on the right path. Marie, on the other hand, seemed to quickly realise she held a power of sorts over Michael. She manipulated him with persuasive words, convincing him that only they were destined for greatness within the group. Their once platonic and supportive, if slightly flirtatious, relationship quickly morphed into something both physical and toxic, as Marie took advantage of Michael's attraction to her and his vulnerability and desire for spiritual enlightenment. Michael found himself caught in a web of conflicting emotions. On the one hand, he was drawn to the spiritual teachings and the sense of community within the group. It provided him with a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, one he'd been searching for. On the other hand, he couldn't shake the feeling that something needed confirming in his relationship with Marie. Deep down, he sensed he was being manipulated, and this exploitation of his vulnerability was not healthy. Yet he found himself unable to break free. He'd fallen for Marie, and fallen hard. And although she was unaware, every suspicion Christine Taylor had about the two was indeed correct. One evening, at a group gathering, Michael took Marie aside from the group and went upstairs to have a private conversation. He wanted to declare his true feelings. However, Marie firmly stated that she was not interested in pursuing any kind of relationship. She made it clear that she viewed their connection as purely transactional, devoid of any emotional involvement. The people downstairs, Christine in particular, grew curious about the delay between the two individuals. To everyone's surprise, especially Marie's, Michael descended the stairs with a smile on his face. He claimed that divine intervention had occurred, preventing a potentially sinful situation. With his arms raised, he expressed gratitude for what he called 
another victory for the Lord. Marie raised an eyebrow at Michael's sudden change in demeanour, finding it hard to believe that he would attribute her rejection as a divine intervention. As the people downstairs began to exchange puzzled glances, Marie couldn't help but wonder if Michael was simply trying to save face or if something more sinister was taking place. Marie couldn't shake the feeling that there was more to Michael's religious proclamation than met the eye. As she observed the perplexed expressions on the faces of those around, she couldn't help but sense an undercurrent of tension. It was just hanging in the air, as if everyone else also felt that something was amiss. Perhaps in Michael's mind, this deep unspoken connection with a woman he believed was on the same wavelength as him had been cruelly shattered by her rejection. The weight of this experience, combined with its implications for Michael's self-created map of his future, pushed Michael to the edge of his sanity. Because as the attendees tried to regroup, in a chilling turn of events, a sinister transformation overtook Michael. Michael, usually a gentle and unassuming man, stood transformed. His appearance was no longer recognisable as human. It was like a beast had taken over. His eyes, wild and unyielding, locked onto Marie with an intensity that sent shivers down the spine of all present. The atmosphere became thick with dread as the room's occupants could only watch in horror as the scene unfolded. As Marie tried to comprehend the situation, Michael began speaking in tongues. The words he uttered were indecipherable, a cacophony of sounds that seemed to come from another realm. The suddenness of the event left everyone paralysed, unable to react or intervene, and before anyone could muster the courage to approach him, Michael's behaviour escalated. With a sudden burst of energy, he lunged at Marie. The room echoed with Marie's terrified screams. Christine, witnessing her husband's uncharacteristic aggression, attempted to intervene. Desperation evident in her actions, she tried to shield Marie from Michael's wrath but her efforts were in vain. Michael, with a strength that seemed otherworldly, pushed Christine aside, grabbing Marie by her hair and hurling her across the room. The impact left Marie unconscious, her body laying limp on the cold floor. But as quickly as the violent episode began, it ended. Michael, drained of energy collapsed to the ground and the room which moments ago was filled with chaos fell into an eerie silence all eyes were on Michael waiting for some sign some explanation for the terrifying events that had just transpired when Michael finally regained consciousness his confusion was evident he looked around frantically, 
trying to piece together the events. To the astonishment of all present, Michael claimed he had no memory of the incident. His genuine bewilderment further deepened the mystery, especially to his wife, Christine. Marie, recovering from the shock, proposed a chilling theory. She believed Michael had been possessed by a demonic force. Her conviction stemmed from the unnatural transformation she'd just witnessed, a transformation she described as Michael having the face of the devil. The only recourse, she believed, was an exorcism, a ritual to expel a malevolent spirit which had taken hold of Michael. Michael and Christine, still reeling from the events, were at a loss. The idea of possession, whilst terrifying, seemed to be the only explanation that would fit the bizarre nature of Michael's behaviour. And they trusted Marie's judgement, if for no other reason that they were so out of their comfort zone it was unreal. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. They were both new to all of this. Marie was not. They were still learning. Marie was an expert in scripture. So if Marie claims that Michael's possessed, well, the expert has spoken. Over the next week, Michael's behaviour became increasingly unpredictable. He would whisper bizarre things to himself and grew enraged at any religious imagery. One day, whilst returning from the shops, a neighbour noticed Michael strolling towards her in a seemingly confused way. Smiling and nervously nodding hello, she tried to walk around the clearly disturbed Michael. However, he smiled at her, spat at her feet, told her it was milk, and told her to drink it, because it was the milk of human kindness. The neighbour walked away at double pace. Christine was now concerned and, well, scared both for and of Michael. And after seeking advice from the fellowship again, they attended a meeting held by Reverend Peter Vincent of the Church of St. Thomas in Barnsley on the evening of October the 3rd. Reverend Vincent could tell something was awry with Michael within minutes of meeting him. And so, doing what he believed was best, he conducted a minor exorcism, but only after the sacrament of confession. Afterwards, the tailors, fatigued, 
confused and scared, made their way home. When they got back, Michael begged his wife to stay by his side as he was too terrified to sleep, and together they prayed until sleep took over. On October the 5th, Michael returned for another fellowship meeting. But once more, his behaviour, his outbursts, his inane grinning, terrified the group enough that they decided he needed to be taken right there and then to Reverend Vincent. On arrival at the vicar's residence, Sally, the wife of the vicar, greeted Michael and Christine and helped them settle at the kitchen table. But this was all new to Reverend Vincent, so he called on Raymond Smith, a Barnsley Methodist clergyman, for an outsider's point of view. Smith and his wife Margaret arrived at the vicarage, but upon taking a seat for supper, Michael picked up his plate and shattered the dish on the ground without any warning. At this point, the vicar's cat walked into the room. Michael screamed at the poor feline, grabbing it by the scruff of the neck and yanking fur off its back before hurling it out of the room before anyone could stop him. Reverend Vincent was stunned. In his mind, and who could blame him after witnessing that, Michael was clearly possessed. Possessed by something extremely evil. In the Reverend's mind, there was no other choice than to carry out a full exorcism. However, Raymond Smith cleared his throat, and whilst the others glanced around uncomfortably, Smith stated he was unconvinced by Reverend Vincent's diagnosis, and claimed it would be best to, at the very least, contact a doctor first. However, Christine said she was concerned that that might cause Michael more grief. Sally, Vincent's wife, who was a big believer in the power of possession, enthusiastically agreed with Christine. Sally stated she believed not only was Michael possessed, but, going even further, that Marie Robinson was the perpetrator. Claiming Marie had clearly dedicated Michael's soul to Satan during one of her strange ceremonies. And so, within hours... Michael was laying down on a bed of hay within the vestry of St. Thomas Church. A Methodist pastor, Donald James, a supposed expert in this field, had been quickly called to assist with this hurried exorcism. The three clergy members' wives dimmed the lights and lit candles around the vestry, whilst Donald James, Raymond Smith and Reverend Vincent surrounded the wide-eyed Michael Taylor, Meanwhile, his wife Christine looked on with quiet concern. Beginning with opening prayers, the preachers, one by one, began to expel Michael's apparent demons out of his soul. For more than six hours, they worked on their ceremony of purging. Allegedly, at one point, in a loud, guttural voice, Michael even called out the name for the demon of incest. In a final purification rite, Michael's own crucifix was set alight. As daylight flitted through the stained glass windows, the clergyman, 
exhausted, declared the ceremony a success, claiming to have freed Michael from no less than 50 demons. But here's a key detail. They also claimed that, although they'd largely saved Michael's soul, they would still need a follow-up session, as three apparently very stubborn demons remained. Namely, the demon of violence, the demon of insanity, and the demon of murder. It makes you wonder exactly what the other 50 alleged demons were. The clergy advised the couple to head home, get some rest, and return later, so that this remaining nefarious trio could be dealt with. And that's exactly what Michael and Christine did. It was around 9am on the 6th of October. Their children had spent the previous evening at their grandparents, and Christine debated asking if they could stay one more night, so they could both get some well-deserved rest. A neighbour recalled saying hello to Christine that morning as she entered the driveway. The evidently exhausted Christine forced a smile and waved back. This was the last sighting of Christine, at least alive. I bet you it's just some freshers prank or some bloody students, said Ian Walker to his colleague. The police officers were following up on a peculiar call to the station. Apparently, a concerned member of the public had witnessed a naked man covered head to toe in red paint strolling down the street. Now, this was a small town and a Sunday, so it was mere minutes before Walker pointed. There he is, honest to God, some people. The officers, smiling, pulled over and approached the man. However, their smiles soon became frowns as it became evidently clear that this man was no student, and the sticky red substance that covered his body was in fact blood. Walker radioed back to say he'd found the man, and was informed neighbours had been in touch too since the initial call, and they now believed the man stood in front of them, covered in blood, was Michael Taylor. From a safe distance, Walker inspected Taylor, walking around him to check if the blood was maybe from a gash or a wound. All the while, Taylor stirred off into the middle distance, muttering nonchalantly, This is the blood of Satan. I've killed my wife. I know I have. Walker radioed the station, who dispatched a team to Taylor's residence whilst Walker remained with Taylor until another police unit joined up with an ambulance to take him away to a nearby hospital, for both a physical and mental review. Walker and his colleague decided to check in at the Taylor's residence, but he was met outside by one of the first detectives who was on the scene. The pale detective, hands outstretched, said, You don't want to go in there, son, believe me. Walker noticed footsteps of blood leading out of the house from behind the detective. 
figuring that this was part of his job, and he would need to get used to seeing such sights sooner rather than later, he ignored this warning, and he headed inside the Taylor's living room. The body of Christine Taylor lay on the floor. Blood covered each and every wall. Her face, like Michael's earlier, seemed covered in blood, but much thicker. Walker looked in closer and instantly wished he didn't. Christine's facial skin wasn't covered in blood. It had been torn from its skull, as had her eyeballs and even her tongue. Given the timescales involved and the fact Michael was naked, they expected to find the device used to be thrown around the garden or maybe still in the living room. That's until the realisation fell that this monstrous decimation had been done with Michael's bare hands. Amongst the horrific scene, it was almost unnoticeable that Taylor had also strangled and then torn apart the pet dog, once more with his bare hands. They were too late. Taylor informed the police, referring to the previous night's exorcism. At the Crown Court in Leeds on March the 25th, 1975, Taylor was acquitted at the trial for his wife's murder due to reasons of insanity. Instead, he spent two years at Broadmoor's psychiatric hospital and, following an alleged improvement, a further two years on a secure ward before being released. Today, Michael Taylor would be 79, though I would imagine going by a different name and I would imagine in a different town. Maybe mine, maybe yours. But if this case tells us one thing, it's that we should be very careful who we put our trust and our faith in. Thank you all so much for joining me on episode two of The Deadly Countdown. In episode three, we take a look at the Vampire of Hanover, a case which will not only be our first serial killer case, but also a case which highlights how easy it was in post-war Germany to quite literally get away with murder. So I'll speak to you again on episode three. And until then, stop the clock.
Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money. 